Howdy, partners. Guess you all can set a spell and join me here for a special Halloween episode of the Peter Schiff Show podcast. You know, the last time I, I did something on my podcast out of the ordinary was April Fool's Day. And I did an April Fool's joke, which has now come back to bite me a bit, although I kind of knew that that would happen, although I'm surprised it kind of took so long. But if you recall, it was on an April Fool's Day that I did a joke that I finally saw the light and was going all in on Bitcoin, that I sold my gold and I bought Bitcoin and uh, that was it. And I finally, you know, uh, realized uh, after all those years that I was totally wrong. And so then I, you know, after that, I came out and I said April Fool's. But I remember I mentioned on that podcast that I knew some Bitcoiner was going to take it out of context and try to pretend that it was real. And sure enough, a, a, an excerpt from that uh, April Fool's Day podcast has been circulating, I think, all over the weekend or late last week. Who knows? Maybe it's part of the reason why Bitcoin rallied, but I think most of it had to do with uh, the ETF speculators. But a lot of people have emailed me about that, like, oh, is that real? Uh, did AI generate that? I mean, no, it's really me. Uh, but uh, it's, you know, it's not real because I was doing an April Fool's joke, but all of that, of course, got edited out of the videos that are circulating online. But I knew, you know, this is par for the uh, Bitcoin course because, you know, there's so much fraud involved in the marketing and promotion. So it, it doesn't surprise me. And I'm sure now somebody is going to excerpt me in this cowboy hat and try to make fun of me. Uh, for for Halloween, and you know, I probably should take this this hat off for the to do this podcast because uh, a it, it casts a weird shadow I noticed uh, over my eyes. But I don't know if anyone's going to take me seriously if I do my entire uh, podcast wearing this cowboy hat. So I will I will take it off. But I'm going to leave on the rest of my cowboy ensemble here on, <laughs> because I am going to be going trick or treating. That's why I'm doing this uh, uh, podcast early in the day because I think 5.30-ish, I got to get going because I'm taking my young kids out trick-or-treating in the neighborhood. And so that's why I'm doing this thing at 4.30. But another reason that I'm doing the podcast today, because normally I'd have probably waited till tomorrow because tomorrow we get the FOMC decision on rates and nobody really expects the Fed to hike rates tomorrow. Um, but then, of course, we get the press conference that follows uh, the, the uh, FOMC decision on rates. And so I would have liked to have done the podcast tomorrow, but I am leaving tomorrow on a jet plane uh, to New Orleans, <laughs> um, one of my favorite cities to visit. I haven't been in New Orleans since the pandemic, before the pandemic, actually. So I'm finally making my return. I'm speaking at the New Orleans Investment Conference, which is the granddaddy of gold conferences. And it's really my favorite conference because I love the city. I like to be there. A lot of times we're there over Halloween. Sometimes the, the conference was there. And so I would, you know, they had a big parade there in, uh, in uh, New Orleans for, for Halloween. But this time it's right after Halloween. So I'll be there all week. And so it won't be easy for me to do a podcast tomorrow, nor will I probably do the podcast on Friday, 
which is another good day because we get the non-farm payroll numbers. Uh, the October jobs report is coming out Friday, too. So I probably won't be able to do a podcast then. So you're probably going to have to wait until Monday. And I'll do a podcast Monday, probably early in the day, so I don't you know, compete with Monday Night Football or the World Series or whatever's going on on Monday. Uh, so I'll do the podcast probably earlier in the day again. But I, I will get everybody caught up on uh, what happens tomorrow with the FOMC you know, press conference or the, the, the Powell press conference. And I'll be able to give you my take on the jobs report uh, that we get on, uh, on Friday. By the way, so I will be in New Orleans uh, for the entire conference. Hopefully, some of my uh, podcast audience will be there. And I'll be able to see you guys uh, in New Orleans. Look forward to that. I'm bringing my wife with me, so she'll be there uh, for, the, uh, for the entire conference as well. Some of you noticed that you know, I'm not wearing my Al Bundy <laughs> costume. I mean, I, had, I, I, I went to my own Halloween party like a week and a half ago uh, as Al Bundy because my wife decided she wanted to be Peg Bundy, so then I naturally had to be Al. Uh, so I did post a photo of that uh, on Instagram. So a reason to follow me on Instagram, some of you might not do that, is every once in a while you get to see a funny photo of me uh, in a costume. If you want to see more of those, you just end up following my wife. Quite a few people started doing that because she posts a lot more of these candid-type family uh, photos uh, than I do. But anyway, let me get to today's podcast. Oh, but before I do, I forgot on the last podcast, I forgot to remind everybody to like the podcast. And I'm sure most of you liked it. I mean, I started off with a cowboy hat. So, I mean, you got to like that. So you can give me a thumbs up for that one. But I forgot to mention it uh, on the last podcast. So remember, like it, comment on it, subscribe to the YouTube channel. Uh, a lot of you still did that last time. My, my, my likes didn't go all the way back down to where they used to be before I started asking for them. But, you know, maybe it was about half as many. So I know people need a little bit of, uh, you know, prodding to remember to do it. Like, I forgot to say it, too. So, yeah, don't forget to, uh, to like uh, the podcast. So, first of all, on my last podcast that I did, uh, I had speculated, I was on Friday, that the price of gold might really break out. I thought maybe over the weekend we could just take off and then we'd be above 2000 for good and uh, we wouldn't look back. Well, that prediction... Uh, didn't pan out, although I didn't say it was a sure thing. I said, you know, it's possible that it could happen, and it, it didn't happen. In fact, gold went the other way, although early this morning, gold was trading above $2,000 again, but it sold off uh, kind of mid to late in the day. As I'm recording the podcast now, it looks like gold was down about $12 on the day. We're at 1984, but I do think that this you know, retest back below 2000, again, could be the last time. It's a great buying opportunity, as far as I'm concerned, getting to buy below $2,000 an ounce, especially when we got uh, an FOMC meeting, a jobs report. A lot of this stuff is capable of causing a big rise in, in the price of gold. Uh, and, and so I would take advantage of this. It didn't break out uh, over the weekend. But I think a breakout is pretty much a done deal. The only question is how much longer. And in the scheme of things, it's a very short uh, period I think we're looking at before we really see much, much higher prices permanently 
for gold. And I think the big headwind today on gold was the strength of the dollar. We did have a rise. The dollar didn't make new highs or anything, but it was a strong day across the board. But mainly because of the Japanese yen. We had a very weak Japanese yen today. In fact, the Japanese yen was down maybe one, one and a half percent on the day. I've got the uh, the the numbers up here somewhere. Let me. Oh, I, I moved to the to the bond yields. Let me look at where um, the the yen ended up. I think it was 151. For some reason, I'm not seeing it here. It was 151 and a half, I think, on the Japanese yen at the end of the day. And it was down about a percent and a half on the day. This is the lowest the Japanese yen has been against the dollar since 1990. So you're talking about, what, 23-year low for the Japanese yen. And if we get down to about 160 yen of the dollar... That'll be a 50% decline from the peak. The peak was 80 uh, yen of the dollar. So that was the strongest the yen was. And so if we get down to 160 or up to 160, you know, the way you look at it, but that would be a 50% decline in the yen from its peak price. And that would also put the Japanese yen to the lowest exchange rate since 1986. And what is driving the decline in the yen is the massive money printing going on in Japan, which continues. And the way it was reported last night uh, about what the Japanese government did, I mean, they're going to continue to do quantitative easing. They're going to continue to keep their short rates uh, as low as they are. The uh, two-year yield in Japan is at 0.13. That's it. Now, a year ago, the yield on a two-year was negative. Right? They had negative interest rates in nominal terms. Now, they still have negative yields in real terms because even if you go out to a 30-year Japanese government bond, the yield is 1.85. The inflation rate, the official inflation rate in Japan is about 3%. So that is a negative yield. And who's going to buy that bond? I mean, nobody wants to buy that bond. That's why the Japanese uh, central bank is buying all the bonds. The, the Japanese now have about a $9 trillion debt, national debt. Now, of course, the debt is in yen, but I'm just you know, putting it in dollar terms so you have some idea of, of what it is. But in dollar terms, it's over $9 trillion. That is an enormous debt. It's like 100 and, I mean, 260% or something of Japanese uh, GDP. But right now, the interest on that debt is about a quarter, I think, of government uh, uh, expenditures. But that's where, with rates still low. If yields in Japan went to 4%, which is not unrealistic, when inflation is already 3% and rising, and in, r- yields are you know 5% in America right now, so to say that it's impossible for yields to get to 4% in Japan. Of course, it's possible. But at 4%, interest on the national debt based on today's size, not based on the size it's going to be when interest rates are 4%, but based on where the national debt is right now of $9 trillion, that's $320 billion uh, a year, no, $360 billion a year 
in interest payments. That's more than the entire Japanese government spends right now, including the interest on the national debt. So at 4%, they will spend more than what they're spending now in totality. Obviously, this is a disaster, not just waiting to happen, but it is guaranteed to happen. I know I want to take a quick commercial break. We're going to be right back. I'm going to continue on uh, with Japan and then move forward uh, to what's happening here in the United States. So stick around. Today's episode is sponsored by NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. NerdWallet's financial journalists use fact-based reporting for some much-needed clarity in the finance world, helping you make smarter decisions with your money. Get smarter about things like saving on travel, because spending less on airfare means more money for an extra night and maybe a fancier dinner, too. Boosting your credit score, since good credit is like a real-life cheat code. And saving for an emergency fund, because life is like a good movie. It loves a good plot twist. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast on your favorite podcast app. Future you will thank you. So I'm talking about the slow motion train wreck that is now uh, taking part in, in Japan. So what happened last night that caused this decline in the yen also caused a decline in the Japanese government bond market. Now, the last time I talked about the yield on the 10-year JGBs, I think it was around 0.85, 85 basis points. Well, last night, I think it rose up to about 95 basis points. I'm looking at it right now on Bloomberg, and it's showing 93. That may not seem like a lot of yield. I mean, it's still cheap for Japan. But a year ago, it was 0.23. So you're up 70 basis points, which is really a a quadrupling because we're almost at 1% from less than 25 basis points. At one point, it was down to like 10 bips. So this is a huge increase, but it's just the beginning of a much bigger increase that is coming. And remember, I've been talking about this the whole time, you know, because the Bank of Japan, first they said, okay, 25 basis points is where we're targeting. Then they moved it up to 50 basis points. That was, you know, going to be the ceiling. Now they're at 100. But 100 isn't going to work any better than 50. Nobody in their right mind is going to lend the Japanese government money for 10 years for 1% when inflation is already 3% based on the way they measure it. I'm sure the Japanese uh, you know, CPI is as dishonest or maybe close to as dishonest as the American CPI. So I'm sure the actual rate of inflation is higher than 3%. And the Japanese are still pretending that they're winning their war against low inflation. Like they're looking at this high inflation And they're saying, okay, this is great news. It's really showing that we're winning this battle and we're almost there. We're not quite sure. We just want to really make sure that this high inflation sticks before we declare victory. They've already lost. They're not victorious over anything. Because remember, low inflation was never the problem that Japan had. They had problems, but low inflation wasn't one of them. But now... They have a high inflation problem. This is a real problem, especially when you have as much debt as the Japanese government does. And the market is starting to adjust because interest payments are going to skyrocket. 
But here is the predicament that Japan is in, and it's the same predicament, only worse, that the United States is in. But if the Japanese central bank stops buying Japanese government bonds, then the yields are going to go up even more. And the Japanese government is not going to be able to pay unless it significantly increases taxes, which it could do, or cuts government spending, which it obviously doesn't want to do. So the alternative is the Bank of Japan just keeps on printing and buying, and that drives the yen lower, which drives inflation higher. So it's only going to get worse from here, which means that these bonds are even more overpriced and are going to continue to fall, and it becomes a self-perpetuating uh, spiral because the more bonds the Bank of Japan buys to keep rates from going up, the more upward pressure is on rates because they have to create inflation and drive down the value of the yen in order to prop up the price of these bonds and, and, and keep the interest expense artificially low for the government. And here's the bigger problem. Right now, 45% of the entire Japanese uh, national debt, the nine plus trillion, is owned by the Bank of Japan. That's about double the, the percent that the Fed owns. I mean, the Fed's balance sheet right now is about $8 trillion. It would have to jump to $16 trillion to get to where the Bank of Japan is. So they're, they're ahead of us in, in that respect. But right now, when the, the Japanese government pays interest on those bonds, it pays it to the Bank of Japan. So it's really paying interest to itself. It takes the money out of its right pocket and sticks it into its left pocket. The problem is going to come when the Bank of Japan has to reverse from quantitative easing, which it still hasn't done. It's still doing quantitative easing. It's going to have to go to quantitative tightening. And not only will that cause an even faster collapse in bond prices and a rise in, in yields, but now the Bank of Japan or the, the, the Japanese government is going to have to pay the interest to a private owner of that debt. So it's not going to be paying itself. It's going to be paying somebody else. And so the interest expense is going to become a much bigger drag on the Japanese economy. And so this is a disaster. You're watching it unfold. Uh, why there isn't more uh, you know, alarm right now. I mean, it's so clear what's about to happen. And you know, it's ironic because for so long, and I mentioned this on my last podcast, in fact, it was the title. People have been saying, and they're still saying, oh, we can get away with it. Because look at Japan. Japan's got debt to GDP of 260%, and they got away with it. We're only at you know 120% or 125%, so we got a long way to go. Don't worry, right? We'll just keep on doing what Japan did. Now, I pointed out on the last podcast, so I'm not going to do it again. Just go watch that one if you missed it. We are not Japan. We don't have that much rope to hang ourselves with. We're, we're Argentina. There are other things that enable Japan to get away with this much debt for as long as it has. But they didn't get away with it in a sense that they're not going to have to suffer the consequences. They're going to suffer the consequences. They're just going to be worse. But they're going to be felt later. Now, in some respect, yeah, there are some Japanese politicians or Japanese people 
that got away with it because they're dead, right? A lot of these policies originated in the late 80s, early 90s. When the Japanese bubble popped in the 80s, the stock market bubble, the real estate bubble, the government intervened in order to, you know, cushion the blow, to fight off the recession, which was a mistake. They should have allowed the recession to run its course and cleanse the economy of all the zombie companies that were living off of cheap money and an asset bubble. There were a lot of distortions in the Japanese economy that resulted from artificially low rates during the, during the 80s, which in, I think the government was trying to artificially suppress the yen to support trade surpluses with the United States. And so they had too easy a monetary policy and it spilled over into asset prices and inflated a bubble and the bubble popped. And rather than allowing the free market to correct the mistakes and fix the problems that the government created, they stimulated. And those stimulus took the form of deficit spending, right? More government uh, pump priming. And of course, you know, they had this lost decade and rolling recessions. It was a failure, but it at least for the politicians allowed them to, you know, kick the can down the road and not deal with the, the full consequences. But that was a mistake. You know, all these politicians say, oh, how can we avoid this recession? What can we do to avoid the recession? The recession is necessary. You don't want to avoid it. If you don't like recessions, then don't inflate artificial booms. Because the minute you do that, a, a recession is a foregone conclusion. But the recession is the cure to what ails the economy. So you don't want to resist the cure. You want to take the cure. You want to embrace the cure. The problem is the politicians don't want to tell the voters they got to swallow this cure because it doesn't taste good, right? It's, it's, it's bitter. And so they don't want to tell the voters to swallow this. So they give them something sweet to swallow instead. Give them stimulus. Oh, this is, this is delicious. Take this, right? This is going to make you better. And that's what the Japanese politicians did. So the Japanese politicians that came up with this, that wrote this playbook, uh, or rewrote it, whatever, because they didn't invent it. But those guys were around in the 1980s. A lot of those guys are dead. Right? They're, you know, they're not going to have to deal with the consequences. They don't even realize that there are consequences, right? They got out of Dodge by dying, right? And so they went to their graves. Maybe these guys thought that there, there, there would be no consequences, right? That everything was going to be fine. Maybe they didn't even realize but they didn't really care because they were just trying to get reelected and just try to, you know, get to the next election and just, you know, postpone everything. So, yeah, there are people in that respect that got away with it because they're not here anymore uh, or they're not in office that they may have to watch this, but they don't have to worry about, you know, their, their political futures because they, they've already retired and they've lost, left politics. But there are a lot of Japanese that are still around that are going to have to deal with this, that are going to suffer the consequences. Uh, so Japan as a nation isn't going to escape the consequences, even though some of the people that are responsible for the consequences that other people are going to suffer, they got away with it. And the same thing is going to happen in the United States. You know, the architects 
of our bad policy, a lot of these guys aren't alive anymore. You know, you go back to the origins of, of all this. Yeah, a lot of the guys, you know, the guys that started Social Security, they're certainly not going to be alive to see the collapse and all the losses that are ultimately going to befall the population because they, they, they died a long time ago. The Ponzi scheme worked out great early on. Uh, the, the generation that's the bag holder, right, the generations that are alive today are going to have to suffer that. But, you know, I was I watched an interview that got reported, I think, quite a bit uh, on CNBC. In fact, that's how I knew about the interview. And then I, I went to watch it. And it was Stan Druckenmiller was being interviewed by Paul Tudor Jones. Uh, it was about a half hour interview. You can see the whole thing. It's up on YouTube. And it was an interview at, there was a, you know, the Robin Hood Foundation, a, a charity that uh, Paul Tudor Jones, I don't know if he started it, he runs it. Uh, but he gets a lot of hedge fund people and Wall Street people to come and take part in this philanthropic endeavor. And, and so they talk about the markets, right? And so Miller is talking uh, uh, with uh, Paul Tudor Jones. And he had some very harsh words for uh, Janet Yellen, Secretary Yellen. And he basically said that, uh, and I'm going to read this, I, I, I just copied it. He said, if you go back to Alexander Hamilton, who was the very first Secretary of the Treasury, you know what happened to him, he ended up getting shot, right, by, by Aaron Burr. But he was the first uh, Secretary of the Treasury. Uh, but anyway, and... He said, it was the biggest blunder in the history of the Treasury. I have no idea why she's not called out on this. And she has no right to still be in her job. Now, what is he talking to about? What is the biggest blunder in the history of the Treasury? Well, he says that Janet Yellen should have refinanced the national debt a couple of years ago when she had the chance. She said that, well, you know, she was selling... Uh, she was borrowing in the two-year Treasury market at 15 basis points when she should have been borrowing for 10 years at 70 basis points or for 30 years at 180. But she decided to keep the maturity short, and this was a gigantic blunder, and now we're going to pay for it because she had this opportunity that she squandered. Well, I think it's really unfair to single her out. Not that she doesn't deserve condemnation. <clears throat> she does. But if you just focus on Yellen, you let everybody else off the hook. <clears throat> I mentioned on, on my last podcast, this started with Robert Rubin. He was the Secretary of the Treasury under Clinton. He started to reduce the maturity on the national debt because it temporarily reduced the interest expense, and therefore lowered the deficits, the budget deficits. And so Janet Yellen simply continued the policy that every single Secretary of the Treasury since Robert Rubin had done. So Rubin wrote the playbook, and she just followed it. Right? She just did what everybody else did. Now, of course, that doesn't excuse it, right? Just makes her a good Nazi, right? She just was following orders, right? You know, it kicked the can down the road. Right, do whatever you can to uh, keep the cost down in the short run. But yes, of course, she should have tried to do it. 
but she couldn't have actually done it. I'm going to take a, a quick break, last break, and come back, and I'll, I'll talk about why even if Janet Yellen tried to do that, it wouldn't have worked. So don't go anywhere. All right, I'm talking about Stan uh, Druckermiller uh, really uh, laying into Janet Yellen. Again, not that she doesn't deserve condemnation, not just for her job as Secretary of the Treasury, but for her job as Fed Chairman. But there's no reason to single her out when you have so many other people that were just as bad. And it's not like, you know, the problem started on her watch. They didn't. Nor could she have refinanced all of that debt at those low interest rates. It, it, it would have been impossible for her to have done it, even if she tried. Now, obviously, she could have gotten some of it off, but she couldn't have sold all those bonds at those low yields because the low yields would have disappeared the minute the Fed tried to sell all those bonds. Because the reason that the yields were so low was that the Fed wasn't selling long-term debt. The Fed was borrowing short-term. I mean, the Treasury was borrowing short-term. And at the same time, the Federal Reserve was doing quantitative easing. So the Federal Reserve was buying the very bonds that Druckenmiller is criticizing Yellen for not selling. So if Yellen had tried to sell what the Fed was buying, it would have kind of negated uh, what the Fed was trying to do. The Fed was trying to artificially lower rates, and they accomplished that. Now, they shouldn't have been doing that. I mean, it was a, a misguided mission to, to have gone on in the first place. But had Yellen offset that QE by issuing those bonds, the rates wouldn't have stayed down there. So there's no way we could have borrowed all that money. And again, not many private buyers would have been willing to loan money to the U.S. government uh, at uh, 70 basis points for 10 years. Only the Federal Reserve was dumb enough to buy all those bonds. And now they're losing a lot of money. In fact, Druckenmiller, you know, tried to compare the, the, the stupidity of Yellen to how savvy the average American was. Because he pointed out that every Tom, Dick, and Harry, or whatever he, he called them, everybody and their mother was refinancing their mortgage. Everybody was locking in these low rates except the government. Well, the reason that everybody could lock in these low rates was because the government wasn't doing it. The government was enabling the public to lock in low rates by not locking in low rates themselves. That, that was part of the process. But the other irony of it is, and this is something that Druckenmiller didn't even bring up, right? I mean, he's, he's you know, talking about the positive aspect of Americans uh, locking in these low borrowing costs without looking at the flip side, the negative. Who owns all these bonds? Who owns all these mortgages that Tom, Dick, and Harry refinanced you know, at 3%? Well, Tom, Dick, and Harry's bank, <laughs> the American financial system, owns all these underwater mortgages. And the entire banking system is insolvent. Well, who's got to cover that? Tom, Dick, and Harry. The average American who might have done the smart thing with his own money is stuck with the consequences of the dumb things that everybody else was doing because we're on the hook for all these liabilities. You know, everybody's share of the national debt. People forget that as an American, you're not just responsible for your own debt. You're responsible for your share of the national debt. So do the math. It is a huge number. And in fact, you know, you can't even look at it per capita. In fact, I can go and I can get 
the the uh, the per capita number. I'll go to uh, and you can do this yourself. Just go to a, a national debt clock. Um, it's I, I talk about this site quite a bit. So you go to the national debt clock, and it breaks it down. So the per capita debt is over a hundred thousand dollars. That's every man, woman, and child in the country, right? I mean, which little babies, right? So. A little baby doesn't have the capacity. You're born and you're $100,000 in debt, right? The moment the, the, the doctor slaps you, you're crying. That's what you should be crying about. Uh, not that you got spanked, but because you're in debt $100,000 and, you know, you, you, know you, you, you can't even walk yet or talk. You're, you know, you're already hopelessly in debt. But, and that's just the funded debt. That doesn't count all the unfunded liabilities like being on the hook for all these insolvent banks when they fail. But, a better way to look at what you're responsible for is not the debt per capita, but the debt per taxpayer, because the government can't get money from Americans who aren't paying taxes. So if you want to look at what your share of the debt is as a taxpayer, it's $260,000. That's what you owe as an American. Now, that's a lot more than most Americans have. So each individual American is technically insolvent if you include on his personal balance sheet his pro rata share of, of that national debt. But that number is going to explode. But the point I'm making is, yes, it was smart that everybody refinanced. But as a nation, we're not benefiting from that because we have both sides of that transaction. On the one hand, it's a great deal for the homeowner, but it's a lousy deal for the lender and the homeowners are on the hook for the lender losses the way our socialist system has been put together. And, you know, if the government had sold more 30-year bonds, somebody would own them. Who would own them? The banks, right? Pensions, insurance companies. So they would be suffering those losses. Any gain the government had, had they been able to you know, sell long-term bonds would just be somebody else's loss who was stuck holding those bonds. The problem isn't that the, the, the debt has short-term duration. The problem is that the debt exists in the first place. That is the bigger problem. We never should have had all of this debt. The government shouldn't have spent this much money. But why did it do it? It did it because interest rates were held artificially low for all this time. And it didn't start on Janet Yellen's watch. It's been going on for a long time. That's why I've been criticizing it for a long time. Now, one of the things that Druckenmiller said, because, you know, he's also, you know, been warning, not just as dire as me. And by the way, he was sugarcoating everything. I mean, if you go and, and watch this 30-minute this interview, uh, it's so much worse than, than what he lets on, right? So even he maybe is afraid to, to sound too bearish. But what he admitted, and so did, by the way, um, uh, Paul Tudor Jones, because he's been worried about the debt, and he said since the 1990s he's been worried about it. Uh, but these guys said, look, you know, I learned not to let it influence my trading because I worried about it for a while, but nothing happened because the market didn't worry about it. And so my worries cost me money because while I was worrying, stock prices were rising, right? Bond prices were rising. And so... On Wall Street, it paid not to worry because the people who worried about debt, the people who warned about debt and incorporated 
any of those concerns into their trading got punished because they didn't make as much money as the people who didn't worry about it, either because they weren't smart enough to worry about it or they were smart enough not to give a damn and they just tried to make money uh, you know, while the music was playing. But the, the market has been weeded. All the guys that cared about it went bankrupt a long time ago because they underperformed or they decided to hold their nose and buy all the crap anyway uh, because that was the only way to make money on Wall Street. Uh, and, and, and that's the problem I've had, right? Because I have allowed my overall concerns to influence my investing. And that's because I am willing to take the short-term heat. I don't care if I have to underperform a bunch of idiots who don't recognize these problems. Because I know that in the long run, everything is going to collapse. And all those idiots are going to lose all their money, right? A fool and his money will soon part. And that's what's going to be happening. And I think I'm going to have all that money in terms of purchasing power. You know, I, I think we're very, very close uh, to that crisis, the crisis that Miller and um, Paul Tudor Jones says that they've been worried about, but they haven't incorporated into their trading. Although now Miller is finally saying, you know, I'm now doing that because it's so bad. The numbers are so big that at this point, it, it, it seems impossible that we could kick the can uh, down the road for any significant rate of time. That's why he's saying he's still short bonds. See, even though he sees a recession coming and he sees uh, you know, the most troubling uh, geopolitical landscape in his lifetime, including the 70s, with what's going on in the Ukraine and the Middle East, he said, normally I'd want to buy treasuries, right, as the safe haven. I'd want to get into treasuries. But I'm shorting them, despite all these problems, despite a recession coming, because the, the end game is near, because inflation is not going to come back down. Now, what he doesn't realize is it's not just not going to come back down. It is going way up. So the economic forces are building, and I think the crisis is going to be much greater, but we can't just try to say, oh, Janet Yellen could have fixed it had she just refinanced the debt. She couldn't have done it. She Maybe she could have tried, but she couldn't have succeeded. So this is not a crisis that could have been prevented uh, had Janet Yellen just done something smarter. This crisis was guaranteed Years ago, as I said, we made a deal with the devil a long time ago. Right? Alan Greenspan negotiated it, and now the devil is here to collect. And you can't just blame the party that's in power when it hits the fan. Now, Druckenmiller had a lot of negative things to say about Trump and about his spending. But you know what? Had Hillary Clinton won, it's not like the spending wouldn't have been there anyway. It's not like she wouldn't have kept on spending. Now, maybe we wouldn't have had the tax cuts that Trump had, but we would have had more spending than Trump had. I mean, he increased spending. Hillary would have done it more. I mean, look at what's happening under Biden, right? That's just a, 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 a look at what Hillary would have done. And, and, and he was concerned about what's going to happen if Trump wins. Like, oh, this is really going to get bad because he's just going to spend even more. It doesn't matter. This, the crisis is going to happen. The spending is going to have to stop because the money's not going to have any value. 
I mean, that's going to be the problem. I mean, what good is spending money that doesn't buy anything? Trying to spend money that nobody wants. That is, is, is where we're headed. That's what people just don't seem to get. In fact, I just tweeted this out today. I mean, just look at these numbers. Over the next three years, half of the national debt matures, half of it. So there's a $34 trillion national debt. Half of that is $17 trillion. So the government has to go out over the next three years and borrow that $17 trillion to pay back the maturing debt because people who own that bond, those bonds, they want their money back. And so now the government, this is the Ponzi uh, nature of this whole finance, the government has to find new people to buy those bonds or convince the people who own them to buy them again, right? And so the government has to sell $17 trillion worth of bonds. Now, in addition to that, the government has to cover its budget deficits. That's in addition to that. Now, those deficits are running at better than $2 trillion a year. But I would guess that over the next three years, the national debt will grow by at least $10 trillion, maybe more. Because somewhere in those three years, we're going to have a recession. And during that recession, the deficits will be much larger than they are now. And they're already over $2 trillion. So conservative estimate, we add $10 trillion to the debt over the next three years. So the government has to borrow that $10 trillion in addition to the other $17 trillion that it needs to borrow to pay off the maturing debt. That's $27 trillion under a good scenario. Probably it's probably going to be worse than that, but the government's going to have to borrow $27 trillion over the next three years. Imagine that. Now, if the government can borrow that $27 trillion without interest rates going up, because right now it's about 5.5%, and you know they're going to try to keep financing short. They're not going to go out, out to the 30-year bond and try to borrow there because they'll crush that market. So they're going to keep you know, staying on the short end. 5.5% of $27 trillion, that's $1.5 trillion a year just in interest on that new borrowing. That doesn't even count the interest that the government is paying on the other $17 trillion that hasn't matured yet. But, of course, that stuff is going to mature later and have to be rolled over at higher prices. The amount of money that we have to borrow is completely unfinanceable. There's no way it could be done. So the Federal Reserve is going to do it because the consequences of the Federal Reserve not doing it are horrific and immediate. The consequences of them doing it are even more horrific, but they're not as immediate. And again, that's why we're going to choose to do that so we can delay. It's the exact same mistake that they made in Japan. It's the same mistake. All politics, they're making the mistakes in Europe. The only difference is the magnitude. It, it, it's worse here. That's what people just don't get. They, 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 they think that somehow... We're the cleanest, dirty shirt in, in the hamper. We're not. There's a lot of dirty shirts in that hamper. I mean, they're all dirty, but we are the dirtiest. And it's because of the way our economy has evolved relative to these other economies. Now, evolved is not 
the right word because evolution probably implies an improvement, right? You get better over time. We didn't, we didn't evolve. We, we adapted. Uh, we adjusted. I would say we, we degenerated maybe is a better word. But we became a service sector economy because we didn't have to produce. Why didn't we have to produce goods? Because we could print money. We had the reserve currency. And so we were able to replace our factories with strip malls. Right? And, and so our economy, based on this exorbitant privilege, you know, went off on this tangent. But when we lose that privilege, which we are going to do, right, it is inevitable, then our economy is not prepared to handle this transition back to normalcy, right? Like, again, you're, you're, you're totally uh, used to a bunch of drugs. You've been on uh, heroin or cocaine or whatever you're doing for years and years, and now all of a sudden you go cold turkey. You know, your body's not built to handle that anymore. It's dependent on these drugs. And so we've, we've been dependent on these drugs for a long time, more so than any other country. Not like other indebted nations like Japan or Europe, they're going to have a day of reckoning. It's just that there's not as much to reckon with and their economies don't have to transform as much to get to a viable state. Because remember, we run all these trade deficits. That means other nations are running trade surpluses. That's the only way we can run a deficit. Somebody has to be on the other side of that transaction. So those economies are in much better shape. The economies that are generating surpluses are in a lot better shape. Now, you might say, well, what are they going to do with their surpluses? Well, that's an easy problem to have. See, I'd rather have the problem of having too much stuff, right? Some countries are now going to have an excess of stuff that they produced because they're no longer selling that stuff to America. Well, that's a good problem to have. You got more stuff. Great. Everybody in your country can consume more. Your prices get to go down. More of what you produce stays in your country. And so that should make the transition easier, right? It eases the pain. There's more stuff, right? But what happens in America? There's less stuff. There's just more paper. There's more money. We have all the money we printed, but we don't have the stuff that all the other countries produced. So we are in a much bigger predicament. And, you know, it reminds me... Back in the, the Cold War days, and I'm not making this up, because this is what the, the communist leaders actually told the people in Russia. Because in Russia, right, people saw images of American like supermarkets or stores, and there was all kinds of products and merchandise on the shelves. Right? The shelves were full of stuff. And the Russians knew that in their markets, the shelves were empty, right? And they hear all this propaganda about how bad everything is in America, you know, in a capitalist hellhole, right? And everything is great in the promised land of Mother Russia, a Soviet Union, where it's a worker's paradise. So then the Soviets are seeing these pictures of all this stuff on all these shelves. And it's like, hey, what's going on here? I mean, I thought you told me these guys were broke. Look at all this stuff. We don't have any of that stuff. Well, this is what uh, the Russian uh, propaganda ministers would tell the people. They said, well, the reason that there's so much stuff on those shelves in America is because the people are so broke, nobody has any money to buy anything. 
So the stuff just stays there on the shelves because the poor Americans can't afford it. On the other hand, you Russians, you, you are so wealthy, the minute there's something on the shelf, you just buy it right away. And so everything disappears because the Russians have so much money to buy goods uh, that the goods just disappear. And so the way they framed it, they said in America, there's a lot of goods, but nobody has any money. And so that's a big problem. In Russia, everybody has a lot of money. We just don't have a lot of goods. And so they said, see, we're just going to solve our problem. All we need is more goods to go with our money. Because they said Americans will never have enough money to buy their goods. See, this is the, the BS argument. Because when you produce the goods, that's it. The prices just fall. It's production that is the restraining factor. Not how much money you have. Any, anybody can print money. You know, as we've proven, any idiot can, can run a printing press. The key is to produce the goods. That's what gives the money value. So the Russian problem was never going to get solved. They were never going to have production. It was perpetual shortage. So this is what's going to happen in the global economy, is that these nations are just going to be able to consume more of what they produce. We're going to have the Soviet problem. We're going to have all this money, but nothing to buy. The shelves are going to be empty. And, you know, if you want to buy something, maybe you have to do it illegally uh, on, on the black market, uh, you know, where you'll, you'll end up being a criminal because, you know, the merchants aren't going to want to sell their goods for rapidly depreciating uh, currency, you know, and, and especially if they end up with price controls or who knows what. But so the, 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 the real reality of this situation is even worse than the bears think. Right? You had these two bears who understand uh, the, the situation. And both these guys are wealthier than I am. They both made more money uh, as investors than I've made. They're, they're billionaires. I mean, hopefully I will be in a few years. I mean, I, I think I will be based on, you know, if, if gold does what I think it's going to do, uh, uh, then, then I will be. I, may be. I don't know if I'll pass those guys or not. It depends on, 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 uh, on how they're invested. But even those guys who are worried about these problems, and who have warned about these problems are still not nearly bearish, as bearish as they should be. Now, either they just don't want to speak as frankly uh, because they don't want to be, you know, labeled some kind of nut. You know, I don't care if people want to call me a nut, right? I, I you know, because I know I'm right, and I know I'm going to be vindicated in the end. You know, they say, you know, he who laughs last laughs best, and I think I'm going to be laughing best all the way to the bank. Uh, you know, when these predictions pan out. And, you know, where I think the most money is going to be made is in these mining stocks. You know, as I said on my last podcast, I'm not looking for gold 5,000 anymore. You know, I mean, we're going to trade 5,000, but that, that's just going to be a, a, a one step in a, in a long journey upward. 20,000, 30,000 is far more likely to where gold's going to be. And also, that's about where gold needs to be to get the Dow Jones gold ratio in line to where I think it's going to go. Because remember, below two to one, maybe not quite one to one, that's where the Dow was in 1932 and 1980. In 1980, the Dow was close to 800 and gold was 800. I mean, they're about one to one. So that would happen again, maybe with gold at 20,000 or 30,000. But I think 
that's, again, where I think gold needs to go at this point, given how much debt we have and given how many dollars that are out there, you know, where the gold price would have to be to try to make this debt manageable uh, for the United States. But it's a massive devaluation of the dollar in terms of gold to get us there. And then what's going to happen if the price of gold goes from $2,000 an ounce to $20,000 an ounce? That's a 10x increase. Well, what is that going to do to these gold stocks? I think they're going to go up uh, 50, you know, 50x, at least five times what the gold price does. And I think the junior miners can go up 100x, you know, 10 times what the gold price does. And that's what happened in the 1970s when gold went from 35 to 800. People made a killing in gold stocks. Gold stocks have been uh, the ironic victim of inflation because inflation has driven up the cost of mining much more than the cost of the gold. And so the gold companies, you know, if you look at where they are, gold itself as a metal is about three and a half percent below its all time record high, about two and a half percent below its 52 week high. Well, gold stocks have to go up 30 percent to get back to where they were at their 52 week high. But to get back to their record highs, the GDX would have to go up triple and the GDXJ would have to go up 5x to get back to where they were when the price of gold was 3.5% higher. Why is that? Because the cost of mining gold has gone up so much during those years and that's weighed on their profits. But I expect when investors have a more realistic outlook for not only current inflation but future inflation, the price of gold is going to way outpace the cost of mining it and then the profits of these gold mining companies are going to surge, and that's going to reward investors like myself and clients who have been patiently loading up on these stocks, uh, waiting for reality uh, to set in. But again, remember, it's a risky bet, but if you're comfortable with the risk, uh, I think the rewards far outweigh it. It's the best risk-reward trade out there. I'm surprised these guys weren't talking about it. Miller admitted he owns gold. He doesn't own any Bitcoin. Uh, Tudor Jones owns both gold and Bitcoin. But the real play is, I think, in these miners. And again, you know, we have mining uh, 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 separately managed accounts run by Adrian Day. I've got a gold fund run by Adrian. You can buy my gold fund uh, anywhere, no load, any of these discount brokers. So read the prospectus. If you got some risk capital, that's where it belongs. Uh, Not in crypto, uh, but in these mining stocks. Anyway, that's going to be it for today. Hopefully, everybody has a a happy Halloween uh, trick-or-treating. Don't do any tricks. Just take your treats uh, and um, have a great weekend. Hopefully, I'll see some of you in New Orleans, but I'm probably not going to do another podcast until I get back, which is going to be a week, uh, which is going to be on Monday. Uh, And again, don't forget, give me a like uh, on this podcast. Um, comment on it, and subscribe to my YouTube channel if you haven't already uh, done so. Anyway, uh, bye for now.